Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black children. Why Ground Control Parenting? Because we're not trying to be helicopter parents, but we do need to be on the tarmac, that ground control crew, making sure our kids have what they need for successful takeoff. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. I am so pleased to welcome our guest today, the amazing Depelsha Thomas Magruder. <laughs> Depelsha is the Chief Operating Officer of the Ford Foundation, where she oversees the global operations and finance for the $13 billion nonprofit. She is also founder and president of Mothers of Black Boys United, otherwise known as Mob United, an on- online community of nearly 200,000 mothers with 15 local chapters nationwide. Depelsha is a Howard and HBS graduate, and she and her husband have two sons, Garrett, who's 11, and Grant, who's 8. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Depelsha. Thank you so much, Carol. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Oh, I am so happy to see you. We came together over our mutual interest in parenting black boys, and I'm a proud lifetime member of Mob United. But beyond that, as I've gotten to know you, I have been so impressed with your can-do attitude, your ability to get things done, and your dogged pursuit of things you are passionate about, like raising your black boys. So I am very much looking forward to our conversation today because we have a lot of different things to talk about. How yeah, are you doing? I'm, I'm exhausted. You know, I'm exhausted emotionally. I'm exhausted psychologically, and I'm exhausted physically. Oh, oh, you know, I mean, it's funny. We talked about this a few days ago. When people say, how are you? People I haven't talked to in a while. And and I know we've both been getting hit up by a lot of people who want to know how we are. Mm-hmm. My instinctive reaction has been to say, I'm good. I'm fine because uh, my family is well. And um, we as a people have been not quite here before, but we've been here before generally, metaphorically. We've been in this place before. Yeah. And, you know, I think you're right. We we deal with these things all the time as a people and, you know, you and I are engaged in these conversations all the time. And for many people, it's either a new conversation or a fleeting conversation that comes and goes based on the news cycle. So that has been exhausting for me. It's been exhausting, but also invigorating because so many people have shown interest in our work and want to know more about Mob United and reaching out to support and see what they can do. So it's been overwhelming in a good way. But also, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag. So I'm like, why didn't you care? Like, how many videos do people have to see to know that this is not a one-off? Like, this happens a lot and has been happening for so long. So why do you only care if we have a very clear, nine-minute-long, brutal killing of someone? Like, what does it take? That is exactly right. That that leads me to what I wanted to ask about. Certainly, I know this story, but um, for the benefit of listeners who may not, um, your the story of the founding of Mob United came out of, to your point, an earlier situation where you woke up one morning and saw that back to back, two black men had been killed uh, right. by police officers. Uh, and and you just couldn't take it. I mean, you were devastated, and you went to your computer, and you reached out to your friends for solace. So you, you made a Facebook group, and you reached out to 30 friends, mothers of black boys, just to see if you could find some support and some solidarity, and, and then what happened? You know, I had the moment that a lot of people are having now in that reaction four years ago. 
the summer of 2016. And if you remember, mm-hmm. that was a very um, tragic summer where we had two back-to-back killings of Black men within, like you said, about 24 hours of each other. So um, Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge and then Philando Castile in Minnesota. And so I went to bed seeing the images of Alton Sterling on the ground, you know, with blood all over his stomach and a police officer shot him as close range. And that's, I couldn't get that out of my mind as I tried to go to sleep. And then I woke up the next morning and here's a family in Minnesota. And I was just confused. I was, I could not follow the conversation because I was like, what do they have to do with Alton Sterling? And when I figured out that they were actually talking about a different incident of another black man being killed by police in another location, practically broadcast live on Facebook, it just Mm. broke me. It broke me emotionally and I couldn't move. I was paralyzed. I couldn't get out of bed. And I I was supposed to go back to work that day. And I just decided, you know, it's Thursday. Why am I going back to work on a Thursday? So I emailed my boss to say, I'll be back on Monday. And I always say, had I gone to work that day, a schedule, Mob United probably would have never happened. But I'd actually had the idea in my mind to start some kind of support group, something for Moms of Black Boys um, ever since Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and Eric Garner, so many cases before them. But at this particular point in time, in 2016, my sons were seven and four. So I think, you know, that's one big point. You feel it differently when you are a mom of a black boy. And, and, you know, just looking at my sons and them growing up and around that same time, an article came out that said that by the time black boys are 10, they go from being viewed as innocent, sweet, cute, children to being viewed as a threat and someone who may harm you and an aggressor. So I'm looking at my adorable son and, you know, my oldest son who was seven at the time has autism. And I'm thinking I have three years to solve this problem because by the time he's 10, people are going to look at him like he's a threat. And that's literally like, I'm a solutions oriented person. So I'm literally like, okay, three years, I got to figure this out and change the world to save my sons. And that was... (laughs) Right, I know. It is I mean, laughable. We but. laugh to keep from crying, but but I guess we can do attitude. You're like, okay, what do I got? What's today? Right, what's today? So by the time I sit birthday, this needs to go away because this is a very scary world. And I wrote um I wrote an op-ed about it in for the root.com that describes something I coined mob disorder, which is mm-hmm. a seemingly irrational fear that mothers of black boys have that every time your son leaves home, he may not return and he may be mistaken, you know as someone who committed a crime or has a gun in his pocket when it's really a pencil, like the list goes on. So um, that was the impetus. But I posted on Facebook just my thoughts and what I was feeling at the time. I only sent it to about 30 friends and then it grew virally. I didn't even know how Facebook groups worked. Like that's how little I knew about this. So I always say I accidentally started an organization. I was really just (laughs) expressing my own feelings to my friends did not know even that people could add other people. So that's how unintentional oh. that was. I didn't even know that was possible without my permission, but people just started joining and adding and it grew to more than 21,000 that very day and, and you know, on to more than 170,000 now. And we formed, you know, two formal organizations to advocate to change policies and perceptions. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So I did want to know just to, to technically there, there are two separate organizations. There's Mob United and then there's Mob United for Social Justice. But they said they I feel as if they overlap to some degree. I mean, obviously, they're two separate ones. But how do yeah. they operate together? And so the 501c3 Moms of Black Boys United, I describe as the what we can do side of the equation. So mm-hmm. its mission is to provide information and support 
um, that kind of educates moms on how to navigate all these situations that our sons may find themselves in. We primarily focus on the education system, the criminal justice system, and mental health systems. Um, Mm -hmm. So how do you navigate if your son is arrested? How do you navigate if they come to you and say, we think your son has special needs, he needs an IEP, and you don't think that's right? How do you Mm -hmm. navigate... um, if you need an educational advocate, all kinds of teacher parent conferences, like we you should hear all mm-hmm. of the microaggressions we hear from that. So moms con- come to us um, with their issues, but we also host webinars and seminars and, you know, we do it virtually a lot. We would be doing it in person if it wasn't for coronavirus on things like the school to prison pipeline, how to interact safely with law enforcement, dealing with trauma that results from all these issues, a whole host of topics. So that's the like equipping ourselves with the right knowledge and tools to be able to effectively navigate and helping our sons navigate. Then Mob United for Social Change is an advocacy organization that focuses on legislation. So, you know, we're real time talking about getting behind the Police Reform Act that was just introduced. Um, We also use that organization to speak out on specific cases. So if you go to our site, you'll see we release statements on Ahmaud Arbery, release statements on the treatment of people in New York, people of color being mistreated um, during how People are being policed during coronavirus and also, of course, Mm -hmm. George Floyd. So we use it as the advocacy arm to mobilize moms to speak out, to reach out to public officials at the local, state and federal level. Whereas Moms of Life was United is more the education and support part in the community wellness aspect. So we also use that organization to focus on our own mental health and wellness. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference, but ultimately it's the same group of people, but just executing different activities. And we have committees of people who focus on different aspects of it. Right, 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 right. Well, you know, you talked about the wellness and one of the things I, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because one of the things I notice when I go on Facebook, I get sort of messages from moms of black boys United uh, often. The most interesting thing to me is that as much as it's an organization that is of moms who care about their boys um, in terms of their place in the world and protecting them, your hashtag protect them is, is your, is one, protect of your them. Yes. Yes, one of your slogans. <laughs> What really speaks to me is how the messages that are on the sort of constant thread are really messages of pride in many instances of what their sons are doing. It's sort of, it's a presentation of young boys who are black and their mothers who are so proud of what they are doing. Here's my son. He just graduated from this school or he just got this. And then, then of course there are some tragedies. You know, pray for my son. He just got hurt. I mean, just, it's just, it's the commonality of moms, moms first and foremost. Certainly it's a great thing to have an organization that's focused on um, the political aspects of having a black boy but there's it's just amazing to see just the humanity of it the sort of here's my boy i mean whenever i kind of want to look look and see sort of who these women are all over the united states with their sons that they're so proud of and and to your point about the positive images it's just you know in this world where um particularly now the globally we're so focused laser focused on um the fact that we have been oppressed which is should be focused on (laughs) but it is really heartening though i mean back to the point of being really tired at some point you need to be so i say that to say that i'm very impressed with the two arms of the organization i'm really happy to see that that the essence of the moms united not the advocacy arm but wellness and the wellness includes just Talking about your boy. <laughs> Talking Absolutely. about your boy. Yeah, that's a critical piece. I'm glad you mentioned that because I should have highlighted it more. Actually, the 
the, the technical 501c3 IRS mission of Moms of Black Boys United is to provide information and support to Moms of Black Boys and to promote positive images of Black boys and men. And what you're describing in terms of what you see in the Facebook group happened on the very first day. Like there was mm-hmm. all this anguish and people were distraught. Then someone in the group said, let's just post pictures of our boys. Like it was literally a, an intentional thing. And it, you just saw this beautiful tapestry of Black boys mm-hmm. from all over the country and in some cases the world and moms just celebrating their accomplishments and their talents and expressing their hopes and dreams from that for them while also expressing their very real fears and concerns for them. So that is absolutely a component. We lift each other up and we certainly celebrate their accomplishments, whether they're graduating or have an art exhibit or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. I often talk about the importance of parent groups, parents getting together and talking about the good times and the bad times. And this is this global parent group, global group of moms who can relate on so many different levels. So that, that independent of your needing to fix the world in the three years that you gave yourself, that, that, yeah, how did I do? What happened? <laughs> that is, that is something else that you should be very proud of because if, moms are not sort of whole and well, it's very hard to help your children be well if you, if you're, if you don't have that support. So that, that is, that is wonderful, really wonderful. So, so in one other question I had, I've been thinking about this a lot in recent days. How has this talk about the talk (laughs) impacted Mob United's work? Do you guys spend a lot of time focusing on the talk or, or do you find now in this moment that there's more of a conversation in this group or has all of this global attention that's made you tired of focusing on it? First, I will say, yes, we talk about the talk um, so much so that we formed a partnership with Noble, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, specifically around the talk and in, you know, making sure our sons and the community at large are trained on how to interact safely with law enforcement. So Noble has a turnkey program, an interactive workshop um, that they do, and we partner with them. And in our sessions, we always make sure that our perspective is heard too. So their messages, you know, like any police officer, just comply with the police and you'll be fine. But we know that's not true based on many cases. So um, we want to make sure they hear our perspective and the experiences that we've had and our sons have had in interactions with police. Um, but in general, um, I've always been a little um, resentful of the talk because I think it's the wrong talk. It puts the burden on citizens to be professionally trained in how to interact with people who are supposed to supposed to be the professionals who have vowed to protect and serve us. So I think it's a little unreasonable, especially when you consider that the minds of young people aren't fully developed. So the expectation is a teenager who gets pulled over by police is supposed to, you know, just display the utmost respect and uh, maturity and professionalism and courtesy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as an officer, maybe yelling at them, asking them to get on the ground, put your hands up, don't move, get out of the car, point a gun in their face, and a teenager is supposed to be able to maintain their decorum and professionalism, and the officer does not have that expectation how they're interacting with us. Many mm-hmm. times when they approach people, they you know, they have very limited evidence to say that this person is a criminal. They're, they may be fit the description, but the reality is our sons always fit the description. So they're approaching mm-hmm. people who are not known criminals. They're citizens, and they don't approach us often with respect or courtesy or professionalism, and they often escalate situations that could be de-escalated if they approach in a certain way. So that's the talk I want to have about how are officers um, trained, Mm -hmm. how are they screened, 
Is there any psychological screening to make sure someone has uh, the emotional intelligence, maturity, and, and, you know, actual intelligence in terms of aptitude to do this job and to have life and death in their hands? And then once you get the job, what training do you receive? Are you taught to go into communities as we've seen, like you're at war? Like if you look at the protests today, police, police officers I've seen, like they're going out like they're at war, like like we're on one side and they're on the other. Like, why aren't they trained to come mm-hmm. with an attitude of peace and de-escalation? So at Mob United, we've been pushing for things like de-escalation training, implicit bias, you know, racial diversity training, as well as mm-hmm. crisis intervention training and dealing with people with mental health issues and disorders, because that's a component in a lot of these cases we see, and they're just not equipped to deal with all that. So I'm more concerned about having that talk. I think we all know, we've been doing the talk for decades and the talk would not have helped Philando Castile, who, you know, was a legal gun owner sitting in his car pulled over for allegedly a broken taillight and reaching for his wallet to show his ID and ends up shot. Like there was nothing that indicated he didn't practice the talk. Um, It would not have helped 12-year-old Tamir Rice, who was playing on the playground with a plastic gun and within two seconds of getting out of the car, he shot down by a police officer. There was no opportunity for talking. So I think the talk is vastly inadequate. And especially mm-hmm. for me as a mom of a special needs child who cannot necessarily process language and social cues in the same way and certainly not as quickly as you would need to to even have a chance at success in a police encounter. Um, it's one of the main reasons that I, I have a lot of resentment about the talk. Like, where's their responsibility to be able to recognize who they're dealing with, to be able to de-escalate a situation, to be able to be professional and courteous in a way that might encourage other people to do the same. So that's the talk I want to have. And that's the one I have been having Mm -hmm. for the past four years with, you know, and all of my dealings with law enforcement, which is a big priority for us to try to bridge that gap in how we understand each other. So, And and I'm so glad to say that that's the talk we're finally having. I mean, it took so much to get here, but I think George Floyd's death, for whatever reason, I think it's because we're in the middle of a pandemic and, these cases were able to get the world's attention in a way because the world is at home largely um, mm-hmm. that others mm-hmm. haven't. But finally, that's, that's the talk we're having. We're having talks about defunding the police, like in Minneapolis. And we've had talks about police reform. Congress, they've introduced the Justice in Policing Act, finally. And, it, it, and I'm very encouraged by that because that act literally covers, if you look at Mob United's legislative platform on our site, it literally covers almost everything we've been talking about and advocating for and studying and learning about for the past four years. So the fact that these things are finally surfaced, and that is the talk right now, is Mm -hmm. highly Mm -hmm. encouraging for me. Mm -hmm. We don't want to get stuck in what we know already that we need to say to our sons. We really need to talk about what needs to be said in society. And and to your point, thank goodness it is being said. So I I want to move um, because part of this talk of this podcast is both to talk about you and your work, but also you, you as a mom, that that some advice I always like to give is that you should parent the child that you have, not the child that you were or the child that you wanted. And so I always like to ask about the child that you were little Depelsha Thomas, (laughs) where, where, and how did you grow up? So I am originally from Georgia. I was born in a small town called Rome, Georgia, which is about an hour and a half Northwest of Atlanta. Um, and you know, majority white town, the, the anecdote I share to help people understand it is when my grand great grandmother passed away at 96, the year before we'd had a big 95th birthday party for her and mm-hmm. the restaurant, one of the main restaurants downtown, we had the, the party there and literally the KKK was sitting across from us in a booth 
having wow. lunch. Just having a casual and in full hood. They just had a oh. march. It's not like we were guessing they were the KKK. They were in uniform. <laughs> and after their march outside, they came in to have some lunch. And, and sadly, like people didn't seem as bothered by it as I did. At this point, I was like coming home from Harvard Business School for the dinner. And oh, like, geez. why are we not leaving this restaurant? <laughs> like, why are we still here? We're going to eat this? So, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, I mean... Southern, Southern, right? And I moved to the Atlanta area when I was um, in seventh grade. Uh, but Little DePelsha was very diligent and focused on academics. Like I got attention for being smart. So I focused on that and was mostly a straight A student. In Rome, I was the citywide spelling bee champ um, two years. So I was known for many years as a spelling bee. Wherever I went, people were like, it's a little spelling bee. So that was... <laughs> I would go back years later and they would still call me the little spelling bee. So, you know, that was, that was wow. my thing. Any siblings? No siblings, only child. Oh, only child. Only so child. yes, you got, you got attention for being smart and you got a lot yeah. of attention. Yeah. Only child. That's great. And so you, how'd you get to Howard? Um, I decided in high school pretty early on that I wanted to go to an HBCU. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, I was one of the few black students in advanced classes. And because of that, like white people felt comfortable asking me anything. And I I got tired of being the spokesperson for black people. I didn't think that was something I should have to carry at 16 and 17. They're asking me, why do, why do black people, why do we need black history month? Why do black girls eat pickles? Like any random question that came, not kidding, that came to their head. They, I was the person they felt comfortable asking. I was just exhausted from that. So I wanted to be in an environment where I could not have to deal with that and just focus on self-development. And so I knew I wanted to major in communications and Howard had a great school and was in a major area and was far enough from home that I felt that I could establish my independence, which is also important to me. So Mm -hmm. I always Mm -hmm. say going to Howard was the best decision I've ever made in life. Still today, out of all decisions made, I say going to Howard was the best decision I've made. Is, is that because it gave you what you were looking for in terms of the community? Tell me why that was the best decision. I think because it, it formed my identity and worldview in a way mm-hmm. that serves me in every aspect of life today. So it helped to solidify um, who I am as a person in terms of being confident in my history and heritage and individually and culturally. I mean, when you're at Howard, you know, you have every type of black person there. So there are, they're liberal and conservative, they're Greek and non-Greek, they're revolutionaries, they're military people. So it just, it was a great celebration of an immersion into the diversity of blackness globally, because people come from mm-hmm. around the world to go there. So it was just very affirming in that way. So it helped to establish my own identity within the black diaspora, but it also helped give me the confidence that I needed to go into any other environment. So because of the Howard experience, I think is why I'm able, I was able to go to Harvard and feel comfortable. Like I've never had issues of feeling inadequate or feeling like I don't belong. And I, like, I feel like that's because of the Howard experience. It, it, It instills in you a sense of belonging so that wherever you go from there, I'm not looking for your acceptance. I don't need your acceptance. I already know I belong. It's for you to figure that out. And if you don't agree with me, I really don't care because I have wow. my community. I have my identity. I have, you know, I have what I need inside. So I'm not looking to other cultures to validate me or to accept me or to tell mm-hmm. me whether I belong or not. And I decide whether I belong and whether this is somewhere I want to stay based on whether it's a good fit for me. So that was just the most 
incredibly cogent and impressive ad for HBCUs. (laughs) And, and, you know, I've talked with a lot of moms about their decisions to where their children went to even elementary and lower and middle schools. And they, they worried that by putting them in these predominantly white schools, they, they were robbed of just what you said. And so that, Mm -hmm. that is really, that was very good. Um, And Mm -hmm. it is inspirational because so many students that don't have that experience do suffer in terms of their confidence when they are they are out in the world. So 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 here you were, young DePelcia Thomas, who is very, very bright, spelling bee. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so you your currency was being smart. Did your parents come to have this expectation of you and did you feel it? Did, were they were they um helpful? Were they were they uh supportive, but did you feel like you were on a trajectory in part because you were expected to be? Um, well, I feel like my mother is the one who really pushed me on the academic front and pushed toward, you know, towards academic excellence. My parents got divorced when I was 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of like their role in my life, I feel like my mother was the one who always pushed me to reach my full potential and pursue opportunities. And I remember in high school, like one, I usually got all A's. One time I got all A's in one B and I heard more about the one B than all the A's. So because of that, I always strive to reach my full potential. My father focused more on like, he's a country guy. He stayed in Rome. So my mom and I moved to Atlanta and he stayed in Rome. He's probably sitting on the porch sipping iced tea right now, you know? Um, So he's more focused on be a good person, relax, you know? So I think I do have that balance. Like on one hand, I have the drive, but I am able to say, you know, but focus on, you know, taking some downtime too. Yeah, no, that's great. That is a great combination. And so, and so then you, you go to HBS, you get married, you have children. So, um, you, you have Garrett and, and so how, how are you approaching parenting? Like when, when he's born, I mean, do you look at this little baby with great expectations being a person with all straight A's as you were, it's like, what, yeah. what were you thinking about in terms of parenting? So that is deep. So I would say my expectation is that my children would be like me, but better. Like, I think, you know, my general thinking was that each generation, especially with black people, should be better than the last. So if I was Mm -hmm. able to achieve this, they should be able to achieve this plus, because Mm -hmm. I have a lot more resources and information and knowledge than my parents did. So they should be able to do more. And so I had my first child, Garrett. And by the time um, he was three, we found out he had autism Mm -hmm. and it completely changed my worldview. It changed, it completely changed the way I evaluate people in general not just children, um, mm-hmm. but it certainly had to change my approach to parenting because he's not able to communicate, you know, completely his thoughts. Um, he's not able to achieve academically in the same way. He's in a special needs program. So I had to change my parenting approach to to suit his needs. And then I had an, around the time um, we were finding out and getting the diagnosis of autism, so I was actually pregnant with my second child, Grant, who is completely different and, you know, typically developing and very strong personality and has very different needs. So they go to separate schools, they have separate activities, and I've had to curate my parenting experiences based on the children I um, have, which is very different than what I I expected it to be. Mm -hmm. Now, you had said to me um, something that I, I, I had not heard before, but I really appreciate. You said with respect to children, people on the autism spectrum, and you said, when you've met a person on the autism spectrum, you've met a person on the autism spectrum. Right. Because the spectrum is so broad. Like it's, 
One of, it's one of the most frustrating things about the diagnosis because the moment you say you have a child with autism, people, for some reason, feel like they need to solve it for you. So they want to be mm-hmm. helpful. So, so they start saying, oh, well, my friend's cousin has a child with autism and they're in this program in New Jersey. Maybe you should try that. Or they'll send you a clip of somebody on the news, a music virtuoso or, or some mathematician who went to Stanford at 10 because they had autism. And they just assume that whatever their experience with autism is, is is like yours. And chances are that has nothing to do with your experiences. I'll just give you a sense of the spectrum. So some people with autism are very high functioning and verbal and can articulate their thoughts. Some people are completely nonverbal and can't say a word. Some people with autism are not potty trained, even into adulthood. Some people are fully, you know, independent physically. Some people with autism are very bothered by light and sound and they have a lot of sensory issues. They can't wear clothes with tags in them. Some people, like my son, that doesn't bother them at all. Same thing with affection. Like some people don't want to be touched. My son wants to be touched a lot. So um, you don't know what you're encountering when you say autism. The only commonalities are communication challenges, social challenges, and restricted behavior. But within that, it's a wide range. So it's, um, it's challenging to explain. And it took a long time for me to be comfortable even talking about it because I didn't understand it well enough to explain. And people... Whenever you tell them, I guess they feel like they have to keep the conversation going because they want to help you. They want to ask questions. Well, how did you know? And what they want to have a whole conversation about it that I wasn't really prepared to have. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So I, I want to ask you about um, Grant uh, coming after coming uh, with the, what? Three years difference? Three years. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, it, it, I'm really interested in how um, siblings of children with special needs um, are, are, are raised um, because it's a real challenge. As, as you said, you have to curate your parenting for the two different children. And often children with, with, um, with any kind of issues, particularly with special needs, take up a lot of energy and attention. Yeah. And so how do you um, balance? How, do you find that it's an issue to, to sort of make sure that you're focusing on both of them? Um, you know, it's interesting. I would say Grant demands a lot more attention than Garrett. You would think it would be the special needs child, but Garrett is actually a lot easier. Um, Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't think so either. But Grant demands a lot of attention. He has a lot of, um, you know, I think because of having a special needs sibling, he's very empathetic. So he feels a lot. He sees a lot. He analyzes a lot. And this period of um, quarantine has been very challenging for him. If he ever hears this podcast, he's going to kill me for sharing this. But this is a (laughs) conversation from this week where, you know, he wants me to be very involved in all of his play. And he's, you know, upset right now that I'm not with him doing whatever Mm -hmm. science experiments or cooking or whatever we do together. And I explained to him, I was like, you know, Grant, I was an only child. I didn't, my parents didn't get involved in whatever I was playing with. If I had a doll village or Mm -hmm. he said, like, it was just me in there having to entertain myself. So you're going to have to find some things to entertain yourself. And he started to cry and said, you know, mom, I'm not an only child. I have a sibling and I can't play with my sibling like my other friends can play with their siblings. So he's talking to his friends at school and hearing about how how even though we're quarantined, they at least have their siblings to play with. And Garrett Mm -hmm. doesn't engage him and won't play with him in the way that siblings typically do. And that brings him a lot of sadness right now and he mm-hmm. just wanted me to understand you don't understand what I'm going through I'm not an only child so it's not the same how did you 
how were you able to respond? I mean, listen, Grant is is always three three steps ahead of me. So what I, what I always say is I just listen, you know, I said, Mm -hmm. you're right, Grant, I don't understand. And you're, you're absolutely right. It's not the same because Mm -hmm. I didn't have an expectation that anyone else was going to be there to play with me. And I completely understand what you're saying that you want good. So I just validated his feelings, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. because I don't have the answer and he's right. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that, that I tell you, your son is, is very perceptive. Um, and, and it sounds like, um, you're right that the, the empathy and the, the sort of, uh, observational powers that, that his circumstance have put him or given him, I think will serve him well. I mean, probably it'll be challenging for you to keep up with that, but, <laughs> but at the end of the day, it, I, I think it will really make him a more empathetic and compassionate, um, human being, which is great. Um, and, and just as a quick aside, we've talked about this before, but your passion for, um, protecting black boys, I'm sure also has roots in your familial circumstance because your son will not always be able to take up all the cues and goodness knows no one should need to know how to deaccelerate a, a circumstance. But if you're if you have special needs and you're, you're sort of your cues are off, I mean, your son will have even more difficulty in any kind of an encounter because he won't be able to. So I get why this mission it becomes even more important for you. Right. I mean, it's why I reject the talk because it's not right. being sufficient. It's also why, um, you know, I say, I always say that Garrett was the real inspiration for Mob United and that I think that, although, of course, I care about these issues like everyone else, I don't think I would have been so moved to start a whole organization around this if I didn't have a child with autism. I think I would have just gone about my happy Jack and Jill life and been done with it, right? Like I would have needed a whole different organization, you know? So, well, so I think, well, there are... Almost two hundred thousand women and men <laughs> who are who are very happy that things worked out the way that they did. You you know it it is you've given so much to so many. So um, you know the, the world works in very mysterious ways, yeah. and so it, it is to everybody's benefit that you did start this organization. And I could go on talking with you, but <laughs> but I have to end by having you do my. GCP round. It's my bonus round that I ask everyone on the podcast to do. Okay. And it's three quick questions. Um, first, your two favorite children's books, and they can be ones that you mm-hmm. like reading to your sons or ones you liked reading when you were growing up. Um, I would say, please, baby, please, by Tanya mm-hmm. Lewis Lee and Spike, especially <laughs> for young kids like babies and toddlers. Um, I also really like, um, this is one of Grant's favorites, Ada Twist Scientist. I don't remember the author, but it's about a young black girl who's a scientist and she's very, she's only three, but she's very curious and it just shows how her brain is developing and um, she's becoming a little scientist and experimenting. And I I love it for that. I love it because it features a a black girl and um, he fell in love with it. Wow. Ada Twist Scientist. What a cool name. (laughs) Okay. Next question. Um, Your favorite poem. And I ask this because on Thursdays in my blog, I do Thoughtful Thursdays where I feature poetry. And so I'm always looking for poems that people love. I would have to go with a poem that I performed in a pageant at Howard, which is Ego Trippin' by Nikki Giovanni. Ah, okay. (laughs) Talk about that Howard confidence. If you perform that, you're going to have it. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) And then finally, your favorite TV or film mom? Oh, you have to go with Claire Huxtable. 
Yeah, Claire has um, been winning in that more people yeah. than not have gone with Claire, although everyone loves Claire. We joke about how perfect she kind of was, but it was yeah. good to see that. And may I just add that Felicia Rashad is an Alpha Chapter, a.k.a. from Howard. Howard oh. graduate. So that's what we're seeing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. See, my mom and so many of my aunts are AKA, so I, I'm not yeah. authorized to ski wee, but I feel you. <laughs> it's not too late, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> not too late, you're right. <laughs> well, Depelsha, thank you so, so much. And um, I, I'm, I'm really thrilled that we could have this talk. And I um, want to thank you so much for your insights and for what you do. <laughs> and, and, um, Likewise. And I just hope that everyone listening enjoyed the conversation and that you'll come back for more. In the meantime, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at www.groundcontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info and advice. You can also check out Moms of Black Boys United. It's, it's um, M-O-B-B. Tell me the, the um, website so I get it right. Yes, mobunited.org is mobunited.org. Right, mobunited.org. And uh, you can also find Ground Control Parenting on Facebook and Instagram at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under my name, Carol Sutton Lewis. So please send comments and questions on any of these platforms. We really want to hear from you. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.